Pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would be speaking to all of us from it, building us up in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray that you would be near to us, your people, though we are sinful, and that you would be with me as I seek to proclaim your word, though I am sinful. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So one of those phrases you often hear is, you've missed the forest for the trees. You've missed the forest for the trees. What does that saying mean? Well, when we use it, it means that we see the details, we see the individual things in front of us, but we fail to see the big picture. We, we see the details, but fail to see the big picture. So like, I remember when I was a young guy talking to another young guy about this girl that he was interested in. Young guys, this was in college, uh, all tend to be kind of idiots about those sorts of things. And this was one of those times, so this guy liked this girl, but he didn't know if she liked him. And so we're like, man, like, she calls you regularly to talk about her day and finds excuses to hang out with you and randomly drops by your door room to say hello. And when we're out with groups of people, she, she always comes over and is with you and sits by you. And he's just like, well, yeah, I know, I know all that, but, but does she like me? That's missing the forest for the trees. And I think something like that sometimes happens with how we work through the Bible. I think about how we engage with Scripture, and really I think that there's three different levels that we engage with it. Three different levels. And the first level, it's not really the forest or the trees. It's almost like the individual leaves. We take individual Bible verses, and we just kind of read those and think about those. We pull them out of any context or larger meaning, and then we put them on coffee mugs or posters, and we never really understand them within the rest of Scripture as a whole. And that's, I guess, yeah, I'm going to call that reading on the level of the individual leaves, and that level of reading Scripture often does actually get problematic. I remember hearing a story trying to illustrate that of a guy who was planning to rob a bank, and so he's going to rob a bank, but he has this twinge of conscience, and he says, well, I don't know, should I do this? And so he pulls this Bible out of his nightstand, and he thinks, let's see what the Bible says, and he flips it open randomly, and he reads Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it all with all of your might. And he thinks, wow, really? Is that what the Bible says? So flips to another section later in the Bible and reads the first thing he sees again from John 13, what you are about to do, do quickly. And so he goes off and robs the bank, sure that the Bible has said that he should do it. So, so that can obviously cause us to miss the forest, right? Reading the Bible just as individual verses, individual leaves. But there's another level as well, and that's the level of the trees rather than the forest, which is that we can take stories in the Bible and passages of the Bible and read them just kind of on their own. And that is not as problematic as the first level, we can actually learn really helpful things at that level of the trees, but it can still cause us to miss stuff too. And I was thinking about that because I think that level is how we tend to read these stories about Jesus that we heard this morning. We heard the stories of Jesus's baptism and of Jesus's temptation. And if you grew up around the church, you may well have heard those stories before. But the way we usually hear them is like this. What we do is we treat them as sort of moral fables, that we're supposed to read them and take a moral from them and apply it to our lives. So Jesus was baptized, and so you should be baptized too. 
Jesus resisted the devil and his temptation using scripture. And so we should resist temptation using scripture. And again, to be clear, that level is not wrong. We should practice the sacrament of baptism. We should resist temptation using scripture. Those are good applications, but they're still missing the forest. There's something bigger going on in these stories than just what's happening within the stories. And we can miss it even as we're seeing the trees. And you might be wondering what I'm talking about, what that forest is. Well, that's what I want to unpack for you this morning. I want to try to show you the big picture thing that is happening in and around these stories. And then I want to show you the powerful hope that that offers for our lives. But one note about that up front, often when we preach through a passage of scripture, what we do is we just kind of go one verse at a time and dig into that verse. And we're going to do some digging in, but here we're actually going to start by zooming way out. But I'm excited to show you this, because when you start to see the forest, when you start to see the big story of scripture and how it shapes different individual stories, it gets really powerful. So first of all, let's define what we mean by the forest when I say that we need to see the forest and not just the trees. The Bible is a book written by various human authors over more than a thousand years, but as Christians, we are also invested in the reality that it tells a single unified story, that it has a unity because behind every human author, God is at work shaping scripture to be his word. The Apostle Peter describes it like this in 2 Peter 1. He says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because of this, all of Scripture is this unified story. We can see that in the way that it's interconnected. Uh, like, people tend to think that the Old and the New Testament are kind of two separate things, but they're really not. Within the New Testament, it constantly is quoting and paraphrasing and alluding to the Old Testament. Let me just put a graphic up here showing you just the times that the New Testament directly quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, right? You can see how deeply interconnected it is. And even within both the Old and the New Testament, the later parts of the Old Testament quote earlier parts, later parts of the New Testament sometimes refer back to earlier parts, especially some of the words of Jesus, so all the Bible is unified like that, but more than that, it is unified in that it is a story that centers on and climaxes in Jesus. The whole story is about Jesus himself. Jesus makes that point at the end of Luke, after his resurrection. He meets with a couple of disciples, and here is how Luke records what Jesus teaches them. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets was how ancient Israelites referred to what we think of as the Old Testament. And notice how it uses the word all. Jesus is in all the prophets. Jesus is in all the scriptures. So it's not just saying there are a few trees in the Old Testament that are about Jesus. Sometimes maybe we treat it that way. There's a couple of like prophecies about the Messiah that we point to. But it's that the whole forest is a story that points to Jesus. That's the big idea. Now let me show that to you here in Luke. If you've been with us for a few years, before we started Luke and before we preached through Revelation, 
we preached through the book of Exodus. Exodus, which is the formative story of the Old Testament. Let me try to just very briefly condense the whole story of the the book of Exodus down for you. Israel, God's people, they are enslaved and under foreign control. But through the faithfulness of a few remarkable women, these Hebrew midwives, God brings about the birth of this child who will rescue them. And he gives signs of this great deliverance that he displays, and then he brings it about and brings Israel through the waters of this great river, the Red Sea, and he leads them into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years and are tempted and tested, and they fall into those temptations. But God still faithfully leads and forgives them, and he tells them that he's giving them this mission. They are supposed to enter into the promised land and become this nation of priests these ministers that show forth his glory to the earth. And so then he brings them across the river Jordan, out of the wilderness, and into the promised land to begin that mission. Now think about the story of Luke up until now, if you've been with us. The story of Jesus' birth and entry into ministry. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Israel, God's people, are enslaved and under foreign control through the faithfulness of a few remarkable women, Elizabeth and Mary, God brings about the birth of this child who will rescue them, and God gives signs of this great deliverance, star in the sky, the angels coming and announcing Jesus' birth and saying, this will be a sign to you to find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. All of that sounds like the setup to the book of Exodus, doesn't it? In fact, while Luke doesn't add this detail, Matthew also gives a story kind of in between Jesus' birth and his later years that makes that even more clear. Herod, the the dictator over this part of the world, is plotting to kill Jesus, and an angel sends Mary and Joseph to live in Egypt. Matthew 2 says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That quotation at the end is especially important. Out of Egypt I called my son. That is a reference to the prophet Hosea, who says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And that, that is actually a reference back to Exodus 4, where Moses, God says to Moses, Then tell Pharaoh that this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Here's, here's the thing about that quote. Those Old Testament verses are not predictions about the Messiah, They're about Israel. Israel is pictured as the Son of God, and Jesus is somehow reliving and fulfilling the story of Israel by going down into Egypt and then coming out of it. But but that's the story before now. So Jesus, born into enslaved Israel through the faithfulness of several women, is a deliverer for the people of God. And then we pick up in our reading, Jesus goes to be baptized first. And here's the question we should ask up front. Why is Jesus being baptized? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't need to repent. He is not sinful. So why is he baptized? Answer, because baptism identifies Jesus with Israel. In the Exodus, when Israel passes through the Red Sea, it is a sort of baptism, a cleansing remaking, passing through water. The Apostle Paul makes that explicit 
in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, And all of them, meaning Israel, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Israel passes through the waters into this new identity, and Jesus, like Israel, is passing through the waters. And you get another in verse 22, if you read about it. It says, The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son. Does that sound familiar? Well, it is probably a direct quote from Psalm 2. That is referring back to that same thing in Exodus 4, where God declares Israel to be his firstborn son. Jesus, in an even fuller sense, is fulfilling that. And a side note on all of this, what what we've just said and what we're about to say also explains why between the baptism and the temptation stories, we have Jesus' genealogy. Luke didn't put it at the front, he put it here. And in that genealogy, it traces Jesus's lineage back to David and then to Moses um, and then to Abraham and ultimately all the way back to Adam. Why? Because we are supposed to see the stories of all of those figures as linked to the story of Jesus. So Jesus is baptized and he passes through the river and then he goes into the wilderness. Read the beginning of chapter four. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, this is really the point in Luke's story where if you weren't seeing the connections before, he kind of thinks that you're going to definitely get them. Israel goes out into the wilderness and wanders there for 40 years, being tempted. Jesus goes out into the wilderness and wanders there for 40 days, being tempted. That's supposed to be a clear connection. And even look at the devil's specific temptations. Have you ever thought about why these are the temptations that Satan comes and offers? A lot of times when people preach on this story, they kind of generalize the temptations to be just sort of like the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life or something like that. And and that's not exactly wrong, but there's also some really clear connections there to the Exodus. The first temptation... In verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. The temptation is for Jesus to use his power to feed himself. And why that temptation? Well, sure. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. The temptation is for Jesus to use his power to make bread for himself from the rocks. Why is that? Sure, it is partly because Jesus has been fasting and he's hungry, but there's something else going on as well. In the Exodus, right after being led through the Red Sea, right after they begin wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites fail for the first time. They grumble against God and against Moses, and here's what they say. They say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness 
to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They complain and turn against God because of their hunger. And God ultimately provides them with manna, bread from heaven. But notice their first temptation is turning against God in the face of physical hunger, and they fail, and that is the first thing that Satan tempts Jesus with. Or the second temptation, it says the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now Jesus is the rightful king of the nations and will inherit all glory and authority. That's not what's in question. The question is whether he's going to pursue that in submission to his father or whether he will instead worship this false god, worship Satan, and try to get the nations that way. In Exodus, Israel arrives at Mount Sinai after complaining against God a few times already, and they ask basically the same question. They are afraid of this holy God up on the mountain, and they are afraid of the fact that Moses has gone up and hasn't come back down yet. And so they go to Aaron, and this is what they say. They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Make us gods that will go before us, which is to say, uh, make us these false gods to worship so that they might lead us into the promised land and deliver the nations to us rather than following the true God. And then they build the golden calf and they worship it. They are promised a kingdom, but they are tempted and given to the temptation of worshiping a false god rather than the true God in order to get it. And then the third temptation, Satan puts Jesus on top of the temple and invites him to jump off. And this is really a question of faith. Will Jesus trust that God will protect him? Will he trust in the power and protection of God? Or does he need to test it for himself? Does he have to know? And in the book of Numbers, Israel finally reaches the end of the promise, the edge of the promised land. And they send in spies to scout it out. And the spies come back and report that while the land is fruitful. It is full of giants and fortified cities. And here's how Israel responds. They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they hear the report, and they are confronted with the reality that they are going to need to trust God have faith in God for their protection, and what they do is they do not feel they can trust him, and so they rebel and are judged. The key temptations of Israel in the wilderness are exactly the temptations that the devil confronts Jesus with in the wilderness. I think that's why in verse 13 it says that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What does that every temptation mean? I don't think it's that every imaginable specific thing humanity could be tempted with that Jesus was confronted with them. I can think of lots of things that I might be tempted by that aren't listed here in this story, but rather he's saying that those big picture temptations which God's people faced and failed, every one of those Jesus confronted and overcame. And that, of course, is the point of this, that Jesus overcomes those temptations. He quotes scripture, which is what, as we mentioned, every Sunday school lesson kind of focuses on. 
But notice what scriptures Jesus quotes. In every one of his responses to Satan, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, which is part of the law given to Israel while they were in the wilderness. Uh, So man shall not live by bread alone. That's from Deuteronomy 8.3. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy 6.13 and 10.20. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6.16. So then after all of that, Jesus faces temptation and he perfectly keeps God's law, the law that Israel fails to keep. And then he returns back over the river Jordan and he starts his ministry and he begins to live out this mission of God to the nations, just like Israel is supposed to. Jesus is reliving the story of the Exodus, but he's doing it in a way that where Israel failed, he succeeds. He perfectly keeps the law. He overcomes every temptation. And Luke and the other gospel writers who follow this same pattern, they're writing it this way because they want us to see that connection. Jesus is what we could call the true and better Israel. The true and better Israel going through a true and better wilderness wandering and exodus and ultimately embarking on a true and better mission of God. That is the forest. And the idea of scripture is that we are supposed to, as we read stories like this, we're supposed to see that big story that Jesus is living out in these stories rather than just looking at the trees. So that's the big idea. And then in just a minute, I want to talk about the beautiful hope that that offers to our lives. But first, I want to take just a second and talk about something else. Some of us hear all of that and think, wow, I never would have seen that. I mean, I sometimes even have people say to me these things like, wow, pastor, like you get this stuff in the text and I never would have seen it. And look, first of all, that's because I've been trained in this and I read commentaries and books. It's not like I just like magically open my Bible and get this. But, but that can be hard for us for a lot of reasons. Some of us can feel almost discouraged from engaging with the Bible because of that. Some of us can, be, can actually doubt whether those sort of connections are there because we didn't see it in our quick read through the text. And so if that's you and you're struggling with that question, I want to just say two things to you. First, on the one hand, God is good and his word is powerful and even a relatively shallow reading of it has benefits. Even if you are not seeing the forest and you're just seeing the individual trees, that does not mean that you should not read God's word. I mean, even if all you got from these stories is, I should resist temptation, I should be baptized, that has value. But God's word is deep, and the deeper we go into it, the more life we will find. Which is to say, While there is benefit to be found, even in a shallow reading of scripture, don't stay in the shallows. Seek to learn and study and go deep in this thing. One of the reasons that we don't see this kind of stuff when we read the Bible is simply because most of us don't know the Bible very well. And it's not even your fault exactly, if that's you. It's a product of our age. For something like a hundred years in the United States, We have repeatedly lowered the bar over and over in terms of the biblical literacy and the engagement that we call Christians to have. I mean, I was was struck by this a while back. I like to read old books, and often I'm struck by this sort of thing. But I was thinking about this one story. This Puritan pastor is writing this book about pastoral care, and he's talking about the need for pastors to be 
always learning and growing in their education so that they can answer the questions of the people that go to their church about scripture. So, so that's what he's trying to illustrate with this story. But he tells a story where he is out walking and encounters this farmer that goes to his church and this farmer has some questions about the Bible and they start talking about it. And here's the thing, they don't even remark on it, but as you're reading the story, you realize, wait a minute, like this farmer is reading the Greek New Testament. Like he taught himself Greek in order to read the Bible in its original language. And his questions are about the Greek of the New Testament to this pastor. And the thing is, neither the farmer nor the pastor see that as unusual. Now, now look, I tell that story, and I don't mean by that you need to go learn Greek. I am not great at Greek. But what I'm saying is that we miss huge amounts of stuff in the Bible because we live in a culture that has had this sort of fast food, only what's easy mentality about scripture that says that if you have to dig for it or you have to work for it, that, that it must not be worth doing. And that has deprived us of so much of the depths and riches of God's word. And I say that just to say, like, if that's you and you're like, man, I just don't see that at all. Brother, sister, you can grow in that. You can, um, as you dig into the Bible, maybe as you engage with like a Bible study or some classes or even read a couple of books, although I know some of us struggle to do that. But if you do that kind of thing, and make those kinds of commitments, you'll start to discover those beautiful patterns in God's word. All right, that said, Luke wants us to see Jesus as the true and better Israel, like we said. He fulfills Israel's promise in the story of the Exodus while succeeding where Israel failed. Jesus is the true and better Israel, fulfilling Israel's promise and succeeding where they failed. How should that then affect us? What are we supposed to learn from that in our lives? I think as Christians that there's two answers to that. We're supposed to learn that Jesus is our righteousness and that Jesus is our victory. First, Jesus is our righteousness. Part of the beauty of this story is that in Christ, we receive the identity that he wins for us. The Apostle Paul he speaks of his ambition to know Jesus alone. He says that part of his goal is this in Philippians 3. He says, And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul says there are two ways to be righteous. One is to be righteous in ourselves, to be righteous on the basis of the law, that we can perfectly obey all of God's commandments, all of the time, and perfectly love God and perfectly love our neighbors with all of our being and never do what is wrong and always do what is right. That is one way to be righteous. But of course, none of us are anywhere close to ever doing that, and it is insanity to even try to be righteous that way. So he says there's that, or there's another righteousness, which is from God, and we receive it simply by having faith in Jesus Christ. How do we get that righteousness? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is a famous text. Paul is describing this great exchange, and there's two halves of it, and we need both halves. The first half is that our sins are put on Jesus. He suffers the guilt for the wrong things that we have done. And because he is God and because he is sinless, he's able to pay the penalty for it. That is part of the exchange. But the second part is in some ways even more important. 
God does not just take our sin and put it on Jesus. He then takes Jesus' sinlessness, Jesus' righteousness, and he puts that on us. And so we are viewed and treated in God's family as sinless and perfect as if we had perfectly kept the law, even though we fail. When we read the Old Testament, we often see ourselves in Israel's story. And we are meant to, right? I mean, those failures that we talked about Israel having in the wilderness, those aren't there because Israel is unusually bad. The point of those failures is just to say that this is how all of us as human beings, as sons and daughters of Adam, fail. Sin is their heritage and ours. If we were in their story, if we were in their shoes, we would have given into temptation in the same way. So we often see ourselves in Israel's story because, in a sense, it is our story. But it's, it's also important to recognize that that is not how God sees us. In Jesus, God has performed that great exchange. Jesus took our place, and then we are given his place of honor and privilege let me just make this clear. It's not just that Jesus pays for our sins. Like, that, that's great, and I'm glad to say that. But I think people just say that, and they stop there, and they think that what that means is that God views me now kind of neutrally. That he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to send you to hell, but now you got to, like, really work extra hard in order for me to be pleased with you. That is not the way Scripture paints it. Instead, it says that when we are in Christ— God looks at us and he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That in Jesus, that is what the Father says over you. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And so he is delighted in you. When God looks at you, let me say that again, he sees Jesus and so he is delighted in you. We often labor under this intense burden of shame. We think about the things we've done. We think about the time we've wasted. We think about the hurtful words that we've said. We think about the sinful thoughts that play through our minds. We think about what poor students of the Bible we are, or what half-hearted disciples, or all the missed opportunities and failures. We see all of that, and we feel an appropriate even sort of shame as human creatures But the thing you have to recognize is that that is not how God looks at you. That is not how God sees you. And that is not, therefore, how God treats you. I think a lot of us think that God is going to punish us, that he's distant from us because of things we've done. He's not. And that is because he looks on Jesus Christ when he sees you. And because of that, You have the Father's joy and love and delight and laughter because in Jesus you are his beloved child. So because Jesus is the true and better Israel, he provides us with righteousness as we stand before God. But the good news doesn't stop there. Jesus is our righteousness and he is our victory. Jesus is our victory. I want to go back to that Sunday school application I mentioned earlier, that Jesus resists temptation by quoting scripture, and so we should too. Now, like I said, that is not wrong, but the way that some of us use it, I'm always bothered by. And here's what I mean. We are called to fight against temptation, 100%. 
And it is a useful tool in that fight to know and memorize scripture. But here's the thing. I know a lot of the Bible. I know by heart all the verses that Jesus just quoted here, but I often do still fall into temptation. Simply knowing the answers isn't enough. And that is because I am failing to live the victory won for me by Jesus Christ. The point of this story is not that Jesus offers us some strategies to beat the devil. The point of this story is that Jesus has beaten the devil. Jesus has broken the power of temptation. Up until this point in the story, it was always the same. God's people are tempted and they fail, and then they're tempted again and they fail again. But Jesus in this story flips the script and suddenly he overcomes sin and the evil one. What scripture tells us is that if we are in Christ, we are given that same victory. Jesus' victory becomes the identity within which we struggle against temptation. What I need most deeply in my heart to overcome sin is not a Bible memory system. That could be a helpful spiritual discipline, and I actually have tried over the years to work on that. What I need in order to overcome sin is not a Bible memory system. Ultimately, what I need is a Savior who breaks the power of sin and delivers me from it. And that is what Jesus has done. There's this really interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul walks through the story of the Exodus in that chapter. If you're thinking about the Exodus, you um, you may well go there to see another place that the Bible weaves it into the story. So he tells the story, and he stresses Israel's failure and the way that they fall into idolatry and temptation. And then he says two things about that. They're interesting. First, in verse 12, what he says is, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And that makes sense. He's saying, look, Israel, God's people in the past, were confronted by temptation and they fell. Therefore, don't be prideful. Recognize that you can fall too. But then he says this in verse 13. This is a famous passage. It's one of those leaf passages that people put on coffee mugs, right? But it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's the question. How does that make sense? Paul's just talked about how God's people in the past faced temptation and failed over and over. And then he says, but you know what? Don't worry because no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's only one way that that makes sense. Paul is speaking from the reality that Jesus flipped the script that Jesus won the victory. When he talks about temptations that are common to man, he doesn't just mean common to like us in ancient Israel. What he means is that they are common to everyone, including Jesus Christ, who Satan tempted in every way, just like he tempts us, but who perfectly resisted sin and never, um, and never gave in to temptation and broke its power. Because of Jesus's victory, there is no temptation that comes that God is not providing the way out of. We are not doomed to repeat Israel's history. We are not doomed to repeat our history. God has given us a way of escape, and that way of escape centers in Jesus. When we are tempted, we are to confront temptation with the 
power of Jesus Christ. We are to confront it with the knowledge that we are in him and that he is in us and that he has perfectly resisted sin. And so in this moment of temptation, the power to fight it is available to us as well. Our story is not defined by the failures of the past. Our story is not defined by our own failures, even in the present. Our story is defined by Jesus and the victory that we have in him. So that, friends, is the forest. That God in Jesus Christ is working a true and better exodus. That Jesus is a true and better Israel. That he offers us a new identity of righteousness and that he offers us power and victory as we are in him. The more we learn to see and live in that story, the more Jesus' life will become ours as well. Let's pray. God and Father, I give you thanks that you did not simply come and give us rules, that you did not simply come and give us advice or life tips, that what you did is you came and you gave us a Savior, that in Jesus Christ you have worked our salvation, that before you we stand righteous and spotless, and that in him we are, we are being delivered from the power of indwelling sin. I pray that you would continue that work, Lord. Sanctify us and grow us to be more like Jesus. When we fall, may we fall onto the foundation of his righteousness. And when we rise, may we rise pursuing his life. Pray all of this in his name. He is a true and better Israel. He is the true and better humanity into which we are all invited. May our hope rest in him. Amen. Now, friends, let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. 